you're able to stand up, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. If we haven't met, my name is Dustin. I am the lead pastor here. We're very excited to be worshiping the Lord with you this morning. We are finishing up ordinary time today, and next Sunday begins Advent. So uh, you'll see the cloths go from green to purple next week. Uh, If you haven't been with us, we've been going through the book of Ephesians. We're into Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. If you don't have a print Bible, I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's Word out in front of them. You can grab one of these blue Bibles, turn to page 1,162. If you don't have a Bible at home, take this one home as our gift to you. We'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's Word. We're into Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. With that in mind, friend, hear the word of the Lord to us from Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you please be seated and let's pray as we keep our Bibles out in front of us. Holy Spirit, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who loved us and gave himself for us, that we would have the mind of Christ, that we would understand your word, and Lord, that we would know that it leads to the greatest flourishing. Father, give us hearts to believe your word and hands to apply it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How do people learn? How do people really learn? You know, we live here in the West, uh, and I think actually we mistake often how we think people really learn. We think people learn by what? Information, right? That's how we think people learn is by giving them more information. But if the internet and Wikipedia has taught us anything, it's that information alone is not (laughs) what's keeping us from being wise, right? We can have all the information in the world, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we figured out what life is all about or that we are wise. Uh, You may have heard me say this before, but what I want to suggest to you for your consideration this morning is that learning 
is primarily not just information alone, it's also immersion and imitation. Let me say that again. We do not learn by information alone, as great as information is, you and I also learn by immersion and imitation. Uh, any surgeons in the room, surgeons and medical professionals will often talk about it this way. How do you learn to do surgery? You see one, you, you do one, and then what? You teach one. You see one, so you get the information. That's how you cut a leg off. You do one, you cut the leg off, and then you teach someone how to do it. And you say, imitate me. It's information and immersion and imitation. Uh, you know, high schoolers, think about it this way. What if one of your friends came to you and said, hey, I want to join, you know, the soccer team with you, but I have never played soccer before, but I really want to make the team. What would you tell her? Would you give her a book on soccer? Possibly, you know, they may need to know what the rules are. But eventually, your friend, if she's going to learn how to play soccer, has to do what? Where does she have to meet you at some point? On the soccer field. You learn not just by information about soccer rules, but by immersing yourself and imitating the people on the team. Uh, think about it this way. Have you, has, any, well, psh, has anyone in human history ever learned a board game by the father being like, and now I will read all of the rules of Sellers of Catan. Listen, mine children, and reading for 20 minutes. No, how do you learn a board game? You're like, Psh, let's just start the game, and eventually I'll pick it up. Why? Sure, you need to know the rules to the Sellers of Catan, but eventually you just got to do what? You just got to play the game. You just got to buy some ore and buy some wood, and you learn by doing. Friends, what I want to suggest to you is if you can track with that logic, you have to recognize that learning to be a disciple of Jesus, really being who you were meant to be in Christ, works exactly the same way. We need information. We need God's word. But you and I also need to be immersed in a community of faith. And we need people to imitate. This is why Paul can tell the Corinthians, imitate me. As I imitate Christ. Two weeks ago, I suggested to you in Ephesians chapter 4 that each one of us, every believer, has a unique dispensation, a unique slice of the pie of God's grace that includes unique mentors, parents, pastors, apostles, spiritual influences in your life that is totally unique to you. And friends, what every good spiritual mentor would tell you is what? Be like Jesus. Imitate me insofar as I imitate Christ. That's what every spiritual mentor would say. What's amazing here in Ephesians 5 is Paul goes to the ultimate example for us to imitate. Look at Ephesians 5, verse 1. Christian, who are you called to imitate? Therefore, that is because the gospel is true, because God gave Christ as a sacrifice for our sins, because the gospel of grace is true. What are you and I called to do? Be imitators of God as beloved children. Paul is giving us the ultimate example for us to imitate. That is God our Father. Notice there in verse 1, he calls us what? Beloved children. Children, You know, you and I are supposed to resemble, to imitate God because he's our father and we are his kids. You know, over this past year, uh, nothing has been more fun for me this past year than teaching my uh, two-year-old son how to play baseball. 
Uh, so hopefully some of you have sons and you've taught your sons how to play baseball because that's what every little boy needs in life is to know the rules of baseball. And, uh, you know, if you really love your kids, you'll teach them to be what? A Cardinals fan because they're, the, they're God's team, right? They're the best team. But earlier this year, in the spring, I uh, started watching Cardinals baseball games, and, you know, I watched too much of it, but I noticed something very fascinating, which is my two-year-old son started watching the game with me, and then you know what he started doing? After a couple games, what did he start doing? He started imitating what the pitcher was doing on the mound. He started imitating swinging it back. You know why? Because it's not just about information. How does a kid learn? Imitation and immersion. So you know what I did? As soon as he started practicing, throwing a baseball like Adam Wainwright, you know what I did? I bought him a baseball hat of the Cardinals, and you know what I did? I bought myself a matching baseball hat, so we get the same baseball hats. And I'm like, boy, imitate me as I imitate the Cardinals, right? (laughs) Then I got him a, this is a whole thing, y'all. I got him a baseball bat, a foam baseball bat with the Cardinals logo on it, and then I started teaching him how to swing at a ball. Friends, Picture that, if you can, in your mind's eye of a two-year-old boy first hitting a baseball with a baseball bat in the face of the father, and the joy of the father saying, be immersed in Cardinals Nation. Never go the way, <laughs> never go the way of the Yankees. They are wicked and evil, and they, they buy everybody. That preached to somebody. Picture that loving father looking at his son, saying, imitate me, love what I love, hate what I hate, grow strong. Friends, that's the kind of motivation you and I have to imitate God. We are his beloved children, not just his kids, the kids that he actually likes. God likes you and loves you. Isn't that profound? What more motivation do you need? than to imitate God, than to know that God likes you and that he loves you. And he says, imitate me. Talk like me. If you were to look at Ephesians 5, 1 through 21, this whole section uh, under the title says, Walk in Love, what I would encourage you to think about is that this whole section really explains how you and I are to live the Christian life in relation to the dark world that you and I find ourselves in. If you were to flip backwards into Ephesians 4, Two weeks ago, I suggested to you that Ephesians 4, the first half, explains how you and I live the Christian life in relation to the church. And then last week, Pastor Scott preached about how we live the Christian life in relation to ourselves. And what did Scott say? It's putting off the old self, putting on the new self. Now what Paul's going to say in Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 21, is how are we supposed to live in a dark world? where what is light is called darkness and what is darkness is called light, where everything is inverted. The first thing that Paul calls you and I to do, Christian, is to imitate God. What does that mean? Well, Paul says in verse 2, he unpacks what this would look like. Verse 2, Paul says, this means, Christian, that you are called to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That is, on the cross, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. We don't need to sacrifice any more animals. We don't need to shed any blood of any more animals because the ultimate sacrifice for our sins shed his blood for us. And now we have peace with God because the punishment 
that I deserve and the punishment that you deserve all fell on Christ. And now there is peace available between us and God. But notice that Paul says this is what it means to imitate God. It's to walk in love. What does that mean? Look at verse 2. When he says walk in love, is, that, is Paul just saying that you and I are supposed to live in some kind of like cheesy Hallmark card or hippy-dippy kind of love? <laughs> Friends, when the New Testament talks about living in love or walking in love, you have to remember that this is a thoroughly Christocentric idea. It's a thoroughly God-centered concept. And what that means is when Paul says walk in love, what he's saying is you and I are called to love God more than anything else. What's the greatest commandment? To love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. I think a lot of Christians forget that first commandment. We say, well, I love all my neighbors. I'll forgive all my neighbors. But Christian, your first love, your first commandment, the greatest thing you will ever do in life is learn how to love God. That is the ultimate end that you and I have. You know, you got to start with the end in mind, Christian. Where are you headed for eternity? You are headed for life with God. God gave himself for you, and God loves you. And he proved his costly love by giving his own son as a sacrifice for your sins. And our imitation of that, the way that you and I respond is we do what? We love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Can I offer a blood sacrifice to atone for my sin? No. But what does Paul say in Romans 12? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, mimicking God, it's literally what the Greek says, mimete, mimicking God, imitating God, is when you and I say we will sacrifice our entire lives for God. If Jesus was willing to die for my sins, if Jesus was willing to die in front of his mom so that I could spend eternity with him, how could I not make my life a sacrifice for him in every way? How can I not strive to learn to love him? I know this is hard, and how this is going to play itself out in our dark world is going to be difficult. But friends, this is the great Christian ideal. This is what we would say the goal of life is, loving God and others, but loving God first. And this is very difficult. Uh, you know, this is why G.K. Chesterton in 1910 wrote uh, in What's Wrong with the World, he said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and left wanting. It has been found difficult and simply untried. <laughs> See, what Chesterton is getting at is we often find this too difficult, so we don't even try. We don't even know if the Christian life makes real sense. But friends, see if you can follow the logic. If Jesus was willing to give up his life as a sacrifice for me, I am now motivated by his Holy Spirit to give my life as a sacrifice for him. I'm willing to say no to the things that he says lead to death, and I'm willing to say yes to the things that he says lead to life. Why? Because I love God why would I turn to the things that killed my Savior? 
Why would I fiddle around with that? Why would I make room in my home for that if it killed my Savior? You know, this, this past week I went out of town, and uh, I hate going out of town, hate being away from the wife and kids, but I've learned that, you know, nothing, nothing makes me happier when I come back than bringing great gifts to the kids and to Caroline, right? It's more blessed to give than to receive. You know, it is, it is the same principle for Christian. It is a blessed thing. It is a joyful thing to give your life as a sacrifice to the Lord. So what does that, what does that look like? Well, let's look at verses 3 through 7. Paul's going to unpack what it looks like to say yes to the things of God, no to the things of this dark world. Verse 3, Paul says, but sexual immorality, in Greek that's simply the word porneia, which would refer to any sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. Any sexual immorality, it's an umbrella term. But sexual immorality, all impurity or covetousness. Covetousness means greed, wanting things. It must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. What does it mean that you and I, Christian, are saints? It means that you and I are holy. We are set apart. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead... Let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. You see, what Paul is saying is that there are two paths to life. One leads to God, one leads to darkness. And he's not mincing his words here. He's very clear. So what does living in the light look like? What is, God, what is you know, Paul and God calling us to? Well, um, I'm going to use a word, and it's going to trigger a lot of people, and then I'm going to try to convince you it's a good thing, and then you're not going to believe me, and then maybe you'll believe me. God calls you and I to purity. He calls you and I to purity. But you're not interested in purity, you know, most people aren't. But let me see if I can convince you. Well, actually, hold on. Before I do that, um, I'm getting a little dry in my throat. <coughs> I need some water for just a second. Hold on. This is, this is an aside. Hold on. Um, I have these two bottles of water here. Um, I'm going to drink from, from them in just a second. Um, well, let me. They're about, they look kind of the same, right? The problem is I use the same cup. Um, and I have the same amount of water in both of them. Um, but what you should probably know before I drink from, from the water is that one of these contains water that I took on Friday from the men's toilet in the men's restroom. I had just used it, and I turned around and uh, used this cup, and I filled it with water from the toilet bowl. Yes. If you don't know me, this is the kind of thing I do. Sorry. <laughs> this probably tells you more about me than, you know. I would want. But I promise you, on behalf of God, that I really did fill one of these up with water from a toilet in the men's restroom. By the way, if you haven't, uh, you know, used our restroom. Our restrooms are awesome. We just redecorated them. I have a very special relationship with one of the toilets in there. This is where I got it from. Um, now, I don't really, I don't really remember which one is which. That's the hard part. One of them is from, you know, hold on a second. Well, one of them, you know, I'm pretty sure this is the right one. Now, to just, you know, 
to go there. I should probably, you know, lick this one and, and drink from this one just to be safe, right? No? You don't think I should drink from both of them just to be safe? Yeah, one, one guy's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and so it begins. Track with me. They look identical. What's grossing you out is minuscule. You can't even see it. Why are you so worried about purity? Why are you such a killjoy? Why are you so uptight? I mean, if I, I may drink from this right now just to prove a point to y'all, because I'm not above that, because I'm pretty petty sometimes. But if I were to drink from this one, you know, and really drink it, what do you think would happen? Would anybody, say, would anybody keep me from it? Some of you are covering your mouths. It's so disgusting. Friends, y'all are more concerned about me drinking from this than you were concerned about what you watched this past week online. Why are you worried about what I put into my body when you could care less about what you're putting into your soul? You know why you don't want me to drink from this? Because it's gross and it's unhealthy. When Paul says, don't let any impurity, any sin, any sexual immorality, any greed near your heart, you have to recognize that all of those things are bad for you, they are bad for your soul, and they're gross. And it is not being a killjoy to tell me not to drink from the bottle of water that's from the toilet. Jesus Christ loves you and would tell you, don't drink the toilet water. And if you're worried about toilet water, why do you regard your soul as so unimportant? Christian, you are a soul. Friend, you are a soul. If you are uptight about the kind of coffee you get at Starbucks, why are you not concerned about what you let into your soul? Because what you consume, you want more of. What you consume, you want more of. You learn to live your life by what you immerse yourself in. There's an old Jewish proverb. You know what it says? A sin done twice never feels like a sin. Isn't that amazing? Once you do a sin once, it doesn't feel like a sin anymore. Then it's just justifiable. You think God is a cosmic killjoy? Is that why he says, don't let any impurity near you? No. It's because these things are unfitting for Christians because they pertain to people's souls. I'll give you an example. Uh, a couple weeks ago, just you, a couple days ago, I don't know, what day is it? Several weeks ago, I was walking home from Halloween here. Oh, sorry, excuse me, Harvest Carnival. So we were, I'm walking home in the dark, right? And it's Halloween and everything's dark, you know, and it's like dark outside and people are creepy. And I'm walking to my house uh, through town and, uh, you know, I come across a family and the parents look about my age and they have several little kids all under the age of four, probably two to four. And, uh, you know, I wasn't going to say anything to them. You know, we're all walking kind of on the sidewalk. But then, you know what happened? the parents start cussing the kids up one side and down the other. I mean, just filthy language, speaking to these beautiful little two, three, and four-year-olds. And it was everything in me to stop from saying, stop saying that. Don't talk to those kids that way. Now, is that me being judgmental and self-righteous? No, there is an understanding that people have dignity, particularly the defenseless and particularly little kids. And so when our sin and our filth comes out, we are wronging the people around us. If I feel that way about some four-year-old that I will never see again, how much more does God, our Father, loathe it 
when his children are wronged and mistreated. That's what sexual immorality does. It wrongs people of the dignity of their body. It robs the dignity of marriage. It robs the beauty of a husband and a wife. Greed robs you of the riches that God gives you. Dignity will be struck in from you when you regard humanity as less than. And that's why Paul says, don't let anything, anything like that, why would you make friends with that which killed your Savior? I'm thirsty. Should I drink from this one? Oh, I'll, just, I'll keep going. Is it prudent? Yes. Are you being a prude? No. Paul goes on in verse 8. He shifts the image now where he starts to talk about light and darkness. And what does Paul want for us? Well, look at verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. <laughs> the fruit of is all that good water without any toilet water. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Friends, the first thing Paul wants us to do is to imitate God. The second thing he's pointing us to is to be the light. Did you notice that? Uh, you know, for, for this whole time during Ephesians, I've been suggesting to you that Ephesians works on a very interesting grid between something we've called the indicative and then the imperative. The indicative refers to a verb in the sense of what is. So the indicative is when, you know, Paul says, this is God, this is Jesus, you are loved, Jesus died for you, by grace you are saved. Those are all things that are, are. who is God, who is Jesus, who are you? Ephesians 1 through 3 was all about that. Now, in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, we are given the imperatives, which is, which is the command form of a verb. And what is it that Paul says in our passage? Look at verse 8. At one time, you were darkness. You and I were broken by sin, but now we are what? We are light. Therefore, here comes the imperative. Walk as children of the light. So let's just do a trivia question real fast. Bible trivia, ready? Who is the light of the world? And John eight twelve. Jesus stood up and said, I am the light of the world. Matthew 5, 14, on the Sermon on the Mount, who does Jesus call the light of the world? You are the light of the world. What does Paul say in Ephesians 5, 8? You are light. Now live like it. I love this uh, quote from um, Donald Barnhouse. He's a former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, he says it this way, when Christ was in the world, he was like the shining sun. When the sun sets, the moon comes up. The moon is a picture of believers, the church. The church shines, but not with its own light. It shines with reflected light. At times, the church has been a full moon dazzling the world with an almost daytime light. Those were times of great enlightenment. But at other times, the church has only been a thumbnail moon. And in those days, very little light shone on the earth. But whether the church is a full 
or a thumbnail moon, whether waxing or waning, it reflects the light of Christ. Our light does not originate in us. Christian, you are the light of the world. Christ shining in you. So what does that mean? How do we serve as the light? Well, notice what Paul says. This is why we walk as children of the light. This is why we try to exude the light of Christ. We try to hold on to what is good and right and true, not what goes on in the darkness. And in verse 10, this is why we try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, verse 10, when it says try to discern, if you were to look there, in the Greek, really, uh, try to discern is just simply find out. So, and the point of that verb right there is that you can do it. Like, it's not like try to find what God's will is. It's like, no, try and go, go find it. It's, it's findable. Is that a word? Is findable a word? Can someone find that in a dictionary? Try to. The point is you can do this. You can figure out what God wants you to do. It's not hidden. <laughs> so what are we supposed to do as Christians? Well, consider this. I'll give, you, I'll give you two options. What if instead of greed and coveting, what if this advent you committed to giving to the poor? Giving to the poor more than you ever have. Or what if instead of planning big parties, what if you invited the crippled, the lame, the disabled? What if you welcomed them into your life and home? Or imagine this, what if instead of sexual sin, what if you embraced faithfulness to your husband or wife? What if you embraced chastity if you were single? What if you consecrated your body to God? Jesus, after all, was a chaste, celibate man, and he never lacked for anything in his life. Christian, track with me. What Jesus did with his body mattered for eternity. And what you do with your body matters. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't you know that? That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Friend, all bad things grow in the dark. Bring it to light. Confess your sins to another believer and let Christ heal you and shine on you. After all, this is what Paul says that we're supposed to do as the light, is we're supposed to expose the darkness. Look at verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. That's an imperative. So how are we supposed to expose the darkness? Does that mean we're supposed to like, you know, stand with big signs and tell people that they're sinners? Is that what it means? Or are we just supposed to sort of be the light by our way of life? Is that the idea? Well, it's very common to attribute to Francis of Assisi this old saying that says, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. And that's supposed to be this very profound insight. The only problem is Francis of Assisi never said that, as far as we know. And yes, there is a sense that our manner of life should reflect the glory of God. But telling people about Jesus has to be a part of the gospel preaching of our lives. You know, the best answer I've heard of that, that would be like me saying, feed the poor, but only use food if you really have to. We would say, well, you can feed the poor, you can serve the poor. There's more than just the food, but food is an irreducible part of giving to the poor. Telling people about Jesus with the words and not just the way we live is an irreducible part of what it means to be the light. Why do we expose the light? See if you can understand Paul's logic. Look at verse 13. He says, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, what is he saying? How can something in the darkness become light? Well, I think what Paul is saying here is simply, when the light of Christ shines on somebody, 
How does the person not come to faith? When the light of the resurrected Son of God shines on somebody, we have every reason to believe that they will give their lives to him who gave himself for us. Now think about it this way. Um, if you struggle to tell people about faith, you know, um, I should probably just drink from this bottle for a second to make this point. Kai, what if I licked it? Does anybody want me to drink it from the toilet? <laughs> yeah, one dude. I love that. But really, I should probably drink from it right now. Okay, three, two, one. Ready? <laughs> Why are you telling me not to do this? Because it's bad for you. It's bad for me. It would not be in my best interest. Right? All of a sudden, you all became vocal evangelists. Because you're like, this isn't about me judging you. This is just, I want you to do well, and I don't want you to do something stupid that would ruin your week. If you don't tell your family and friends who are drinking toilet water every week, if you don't tell them about Christ, how much do you have to hate them? How little do you really love them? I mean, if you just watch me down the toilet water, wouldn't you say something? I mean, I don't know, I know everybody, but I would hope that somebody somewhere would be like, I don't know if that's the best thing for you. When you tell people, hey, you're walking in the dark, you don't have to be a jerk for Jesus. You have to stand with a sign. You have to be condescending. You know, there was a really greedy, greedy man named Zacchaeus. Anybody ever heard of Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up into a sycamore tree. Okay. That's a spiritual song, if you don't know what that is. Paul's going to talk about it in just a second. Zacchaeus was a very greedy man. He hears the message of Jesus Christ. You know, you know how Jesus shares the gospel with Zacchaeus? Does he tell him he's going to hell and he's a horrible person and filthy and gross and like toilet water? No. You know what he does? He says, I'm coming to your house today. I'm going to share a meal with you. And then he shared life and the table with this guy all night, just talking. And the next morning, Zacchaeus woke up and he said, half of my possessions I'm going to give to the poor. If I'm going to fight greed, I do it with generosity. If I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to pay him back four times. Jesus led Zacchaeus to faith, not with a sign, but with genuine concern for his soul. And it worked. You don't want me to drink from the bottle. Why? Because you love me, I hope. Love your friends and neighbors the same way that Christ loved you. Two more things, and then we'll finish up. Paul wants us to consider how we use our time. Look at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Notice there in verse 17, he believes that you can understand what God wants you to do. But how do we redeem the time? What does that mean? How do we redeem the time? Well, he goes on and he says, don't get drunk, right? Don't go into debauchery. So how do we redeem the time? What is Paul getting at? Well, I want you to notice in this whole section, this is very important for your moral life, for your understanding of how to live the Christian life. God does not forbid sexual intimacy. God created it for a man and a woman. God did not forbid alcohol. He forbids what? 
drunkenness. Psalm says that God made wine to gladden the heart of man, right? And God doesn't forbid you and I from having nice things. He does what? He forbids greed and the love of money. Psalm says wealth and riches are in the house of the righteous. So God is not a cosmic killjoy. But he does tell us what is pure and what is gross and bad for our souls. So how could you redeem the time? Well, isn't it interesting that you and I are about to enter into the holiday season? You know, Christmas, New Year's, all of that. And isn't it, has it ever occurred to you that Christmas is primarily marked by greed? Wanting more and more things? You know, Black Friday is coming up. We've got to get more. We've got to give more. And, you know, for many of us, New Year's Day is marked by what? Too much drinking. I've often wondered how many people are going to show up on January 1st after New Year's Eve. <laughs> January 1st is a Sunday, if you don't know. <laughs> what would it look like for you to make the best use of Advent? So next Sunday, uh, you'll notice that all of the liturgical cloths are going to turn purple. Purple happens twice a year happens during Advent, and then it happens during Lent. Both of them are, you know, periods of time leading up to big celebrations. But Christians since the 300s have understood that we should be fasting and praying and giving to the poor in preparation for big parties like Christmas and Easter. So the way the church reminds us of this is it puts things purple, and it's a reminder that you and I are called into a season of fasting and repentance. So one way you could redeem this time, perhaps, could look like this. You could do the Weary World Rejoices devotional with your family or with your spouse. You could do it in the morning. You could spend more time in intentional prayer. We'll give you the book. It's right there. We won't even charge you. We just want you to spend time in prayer. Extra prayer is one of the things you do in penitential seasons. Another thing you could do, just throwing it out there, is you could fast from all alcohol. Not because alcohol is wrong, but because we are warned against debauchery. And New Year's Eve and the holidays and the relatives being in town are big opportunities for us to be tempted to get drunk, aren't they? So you could fast from alcohol. And then lastly, you could give to the poor in a sacrificial way. There's a whole list of names of kids who want Christmas presents on these blue tables. Wouldn't this be a wonderful opportunity to give, to serve at the gospel mission during Advent? Most of the names have not been taken yet, by the way. If you're a parent in the room, what a wonderful opportunity to tell your kids, imitate me, imitate me as we give to the poor. That would be a way that you could think about redeeming the time. Lastly, in verses 19 through 21, notice that Paul says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody. Of course, that's supposed to be in juxtaposition from carousing and debauchery. He says, well, don't carouse and have debauchery. Instead, sing to each other, be joyful with each other, give thanks always. But notice right there that Paul wants you to grasp, lastly, that we are not alone in our battle against the dark world. We are not alone when we stand up against a dark world and its lies. We are called into a community of believers. Paul says, address one another. Embrace the community. Why? Because we don't just learn by information alone. We learn by what? Imitating God 
and immersing ourselves in the church, in the community of believers. It's so dark early. Isn't it horrible? Florida sounds pretty good right now. It's like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like, Where, where's the sun? It's like I can feel it, the darkness creeping in. Uh, you know, to combat, you know, you know what I'm talking about? It's like dark at like 4.30 nowadays. Um, yesterday, I was feeling the darkness come. And so uh, it was just cold enough that I made a fire pit in my backyard. Aren't fire pits just like evidence that God loves us and wants us to be happy and warm? I'm sitting out of this fire pit, you know, and it's, it's light is fighting against the darkness. And, uh, you know, have you ever seen a fire pit? You've been there. You know, imagine a fire pit, right? This beautiful light, you know, the smell, the crackle of the wood, you know, all the logs, just a flame. And uh, you can imagine this sort of dark night, you know, stars up. Imagine, if you could, if you were sitting on my back porch at the fire pit, imagine that I used my little, you know, fire pit tools, and I took one log, and I just pulled it out of the fire, and I just kind of tossed it to the side on the concrete. What would happen to the log? It would grow cold and dark. Christian, the same thing happens when you and I are pulled out of the church and out of community. We grow cold and dark. Paul says that you are members of the body of Christ, each one of you. The way that we stay warm, the way that we stay encouraged when we fight against the dark world is we remember that we are logs in the same fire pit. <laughs> that we can encourage each other. Paul says, and address each other not with rude jokes, not with coarse talking. Don't drink toilet water when you get together. Rather, enjoy the purity of the fellowship of God's people. Let me just let me finish up with this. Um, Christian, let no one deceive you in this dark world. Discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Make the best use of your time. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Uh, to put it a different way, do you really not know which bottle to drink from? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity that your word gives us. Uh, Lord, we thank you that uh, the light shines in the darkness and that your Holy Spirit has um, shown the light of the gospel in our hearts. Lord, we pray as we enter Advent that we would make the best use of the time. Holy Spirit, we pray that we would imitate the Father. Lord, that our lives would be a living sacrifice to the high King of heaven. Lord, we need your wisdom uh, we need to not heed this world or its riches or its promises, but we need your guidance. And so, Father, we uh, give ourselves to you again. And, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us in all wisdom. Father, we also lift up to you in the name of Jesus our brothers and sisters who have come through surgery, who might be sick in need of healing. Lord, we pray for Molly Brock, Noah James, Sean McCoy, Harry Gilg, Gail Johnston, Paul Deller, Randy Templeton, Lynn Toombs, and Rachel Allstad. And Lord, as we enter this holiday season, we lift you all those who have recently lost parents and loved ones. But especially this morning, Lord, we ask your mercy to be upon Stacy Owens as she mourns the loss of her mother. Lord Jesus, have mercy. And Father, we pray for a sister church here in our valley. We lift to you Table Rock Fellowship, 
Lord, we pray that you would be guiding their search for a new senior pastor, that you would be with all of their staff and their elders and their lay people. And Lord, would they know more and more your grace and your love. And Father, would there be a great harvest of souls through that church and its ministry for years to come. And Lord, we ask that same thing for our congregation as well. In the name of our King Jesus, the High King of Heaven, amen.